I was a chemistry major, and, and I remember telling John, because he was wrestling with ministry and, and whether or not God wanted him to go into ministry, and I said, you know what? I know God doesn't want me to do that. Like, I am, I'm going to go to school, keep going to school, I'm going to get my job, I'll make my money, we'll support some missionaries, that'll be good. That was probably uh, the spring of my, uh, the fall of my sophomore year. I went to a Christmas conference at the end of that semester. I watched a video about how God had used missionaries all over the world. And I was broken. And I saw these pictures from William, the modern mission movement from William Carey on. And guys like Jim Elliott, and I'll read to you a little bit here about a guy named James Fraser. Y'all have no idea who James Fraser is. He died in China. That's who he is. Um, and 1 Corinthians 15, 58, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And I started thinking about my life and how I wanted it to matter. And I knew that however God used me in whatever way, as long as I'm obedient to Him, it would matter. But I began to feel this call toward toward overseas missions. And so I went to seminary. I met this beautiful lady named Beth, who's a nurse, who's not with me today because Adam's not preaching. And, And... and I got engaged to her. And I started talking a little bit about missions. But I didn't give her the full story, right? Because I was afraid it would scare her off. And so we got married in September of 1995. And then October of 1995, I came home from class and I said, Look, I said, I think we should go to China next summer. She's thinking, cool. Like vacation, something like that. I said, no. I think we need to go over there for a couple of years. And see if this is what God is calling us to do long term. So as a newly married couple. Uh, l- learning how to live with each other. And I came from this wacko family. And trying to pull away from some of that. We started planning to go to China. Our first year in China was horrible. Okay, If you go on a mission trip. And it, it starts off bad. That doesn't mean God is not calling you to be there long term. First year was horrible. My wife cried almost every day. That is no lie. Culture shock is real. And then this thing happened the second year that we were there. Our supervisor challenged us to start engaging unreached people groups in the area. There were a bunch of them. So we would go to these market towns. And the market towns and little valley towns and people from the mountains would, would pour in all the different people groups in that area. And we want, we've came up with a simple strategy. Okay, guys, if, if we're going to share the gospel, just make a, a simple plan. Uh, there's this thing called the three circles, okay? Uh, you guys are learning how to do that. We didn't have the three circles back then, but I'll tell you what we had. We had cameras, and we would get pictures. Uh, at that time, they weren't digital. You would still take them, and I don't even know what they call it now, process, right? We would, take, we would go into these market towns, and we would find all these different people from all these different people groups that were coming into these markets, and we would take pictures with them. And we would ask them, hey, can we bring these pictures back to you, to your village? Oh, they loved that. They wanted these pictures so bad they couldn't stand it. So we would go to market towns, and then our follow-up would be all the appointments that we would have with people in different villages that we had pictures of. So we had done this for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and months, 
And we're taking pictures and we're taking them to villages. And when we would deliver the pictures to folks, we were looking for persons of peace in these villages. And we would share the gospel with people and nobody would get saved. We would share the gospel with people and nobody would get saved. And there was this one week that we went to this one market town and there were these Da'ong people that were coming in. That's the name of the people group. And so we started taking pictures and there was this one little lady, I remember her. And, and when we asked, can we take can we bring these pictures to your house? She said, like everybody else, yes, you can. And so we got the pictures processed. We took them to the house. And sometimes when you've been sharing the gospel a lot with people and nobody's responding, you're not really expecting a whole lot, right? Anybody ever been in that situation? Yes. It's like, they're probably not going to listen. So maybe I'll share with them. Maybe I won't. We'll just see. Hey, maybe God will open the door, right? Okay, the door is called your mouth. And <clears throat> seriously, uh, Romans 10. And you open it and people hear. And sometimes they respond to the gospel. Leave that to God. So we go to this village, and I promise I'm going to get to Acts chapter 17 in a minute. And, and we share the gospel with this lady and her daughter who are at home. And she says, wow, that's interesting. She said, well, you, my husband's going to be back in a little bit. He's working in the field. Will you tell him that whenever he gets in? So yeah, we'll tell him that. So we waited a little bit, and he comes in. And then we shared the gospel with him. And he says, wow, that's interesting. He says, I've got three boys that are still working. Will you share that with them whenever they get back? Yeah, we'll do that. So the boys come in, and we have dinner, and then we share the gospel with them after dinner. And the dad says, I believe. And he looks at all of his kids, and he says, do you guys believe that? And they said, yeah, we believe that. And then he looked at his wife, and he said, do you believe that? And she said, yeah, I believe that. We saw a whole family get saved that night. Two of those boys became church planters. We talk about persecution. We talk about the... Sometimes we think about the difficulties we have in America. Um, Those two guys were coming to a training that we were having for church planters. It was about a two-day bus trip for them. And about halfway into the trip, because there's a lot of drugs that run through that area, it's close to the the Golden Triangle, uh, Burma, Thailand, and, and China there, and there's a lot of bad stuff produced, and they run it through our province to Hong Kong, and then from Hong Kong it goes all over the world, particularly to the U.S. And so we lived right along one of the trails where the, uh, the drugs are run. And the, the police, the military, they're always out there looking for the drug runners. And so on this bus, traveling to the capital city, are these two very, very, very poor farmers. And when the police, when the bus goes through a checkpoint and the police stop them, and they start to look. These two guys stand out immediately as people who really shouldn't be going to the capital. Say, what are you going to the capital city for? Do you have drugs on you? No, we don't have any drugs. I bet you do have drugs on you. So they pull them off the bus. They throw them into this house. They feed them tons and tons of laxatives. And for two days, they just, you know what they do. Um, and the police figure out, wow, they don't have any drugs. Okay, y'all can leave. Boom, kick them out. And they're standing on the side of the road. Now, if, if that's you... I'm turning around and going home, right? Like, I've already had enough of this trip. I'm going to go back home, regroup. You know what they did? They made their way to the training. They got there three days late. That's the kind of commitment that you see all over the world from people who really, really get it. When the gospel takes root in their heart and Jesus is alive inside of us, we want to go out and be on mission with him. It's not easy. I'm not saying that. There aren't days that we don't struggle. I'm not saying that. But there's this thing that drives us forward. The Apostle Paul had that. And when we read in the New Testament, he he had that as much as anybody. Probably more than most people. So turn to Acts chapter 17, verse 16. 
Paul is in Athens here, and I, I'll, I'll catch you up real quick. About halfway through his second missionary journey. So he starts out on his second missionary journey, and he's working through some of the areas where he went on his first missionary journey. He wants to encourage those believers, and he makes a bit of a plan, and he's wanting to head north, and the, and the Spirit won't let him do that. So then he begins to, to kind of head south. And the Spirit won't let him do that. He can't go east because that's where he just came from. And so he's just sitting there thinking, what am I supposed to do? And he has a vision. You can read about this. Uh, the beginning of Acts chapter 16. A man from Macedonia comes to him. And he tells him, come, come over here. Come to us. Come and help us. And so he takes off with this new guy that he had just picked up, Timothy. Timothy was a millennial. Um, any millennials in the room? Man, you guys get picked on so much. I apologize. From a guy who's like in the generation of people that pick on you. I keep telling folks, there is a great, great hope for the church in America it's this group of people that we call millennials, okay? I equate you to Timothy, this young guy who understood the gospel and who wanted to be on mission. So Paul picks up Timothy, and there's something historic that happens on this second missionary journey. The gospel goes from Asia to Europe. When Paul crosses over from Troas and goes to Philippi, the gospel went international. And it hasn't stopped since. So in Philippi, we know what happens. Lydia gets saved. Demon-possessed girl gets saved. Paul and them get thrown in. Because of the success, they get thrown into jail, right? It's not because of the success they get a new pastorate or because of the success they get to supervise other missionaries. Because of their success, they get thrown into jail and the jailer gets saved. Probably the meanest guy in town gets saved. They get kicked out of town. They go to Thessalonica. They are not in Thessalonica for very long. A few weeks. Maybe two months. Thessalonians get saved. Thessalonians get saved. They get kicked out of Thessalonica and get sent to Berea. You see the pattern. The Bereans are listening to the preaching. They're looking at the Old Testament scriptures to see, does this match up with what the, the Bible says they were honorable men, but the folks that had been chasing Paul, they show up in Berea, and he has to leave Berea. And, and what happens is, Timothy and Silas stay to keep working with the believers there, but Paul takes off, and he leaves town. He works his way toward Athens. So if you'll turn, you're already there, probably Acts chapter 17, verse 16. This is where Paul is in Athens. I'm going to read the rest of this chapter, and here's what we're going to talk about. One is what it looked like for Paul to preach the gospel in Athens. But we're going to look at three lessons that we can learn from the Apostle Paul as he preaches the gospel to these pagans in Athens. Verse 16, Acts 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, 
What would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Sometimes people will say, hey, look at Paul's sermon in Athens. He didn't really preach very much about Jesus. A little bit too contextualized, right? No, it says right here he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. We'll talk more about that in a minute. And they took him, Paul, and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. They, they would talk about the latest thing. It, 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 it's like political commercials. You know how those things just go on and on, right? You know, everybody... They, that's what they would just talk about, philosophy, on and on and on. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation that they would seek God, and if perhaps they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said. For we also are His children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man." Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because He has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So Paul, the great apostle, is in Athens, the great city. It's kind of, you know, the man versus wild. This is kind of like man versus the world. This is Christianity versus one of the greatest cities of that time. Uh, we, we know about Athens. Uh, the Persians burned the city, uh, 480 B.C. Uh, and then we know the stories following that of Thermopylae, Leonidas. Anybody watch the 300? Anybody think that's the coolest movie ever? Yes. Anybody want to be Leonidas? Yes. All the guys want to be Leonidas, right? Um, Themistocles, the battle at Salamis. And as these, these battles are taking place between Athens, between Greece and Persia, Greece wins some very strategic battles and they defeat the Persians. And following that, 
there is this great, great revival of, of learning and thinking and prosperity that takes place particularly in Athens. It's called the Golden Age of Greece. Science, philosophy, military, politics, literature, mythology, art, architecture, everything that you could imagine. Great thinkers, and they took the time to develop ideas and art, beauty, culture. Homer, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. The, the greatness of man is on display here, along with the manipulation of the little g-gods. And they build all these idols. Uh, one of the men of the time says, it's easier to find a god in Athens than it is to find a man in Athens. So even though they were developing their minds and their thinking, they were also processing through, how can we work with, the, again, the little g-gods? There were the, the gods of, the, of Olympus, the twelve of them. And then there were literally dozens and dozens and hundreds of other gods. There were temples, there were shrines being built everywhere. Uh, syncretism is something we saw a lot of in China. And this is kind of how it worked with these folks as well. If this is the God of prosperity, I want to get to know Him, right? Okay, but what if there's also a God of, uh, he, uh, a God of uh, being, having lots of kids? I want to get to know Him too, right? What if there's a God that can help me when I'm sick? Well, I want to get to know Him too. And so everybody would just pile up all these little gods and because they wanted a little bit of everything that they had to offer. Which we know from the Bible, that, that's, that's demonic. They don't have anything to offer. But the Athenians worshipped uh, idols. Paul even said the city was, it says here the city was full of idols. Paul probably walked up on the Acropolis, the stronghold of the city that, that sat up. You could see it for miles and miles and miles away. The Parthenon was up there. It was the temple to Athena. It was a statue of her, and they're 40 feet high. 20,000 tons of marble was used to build this temple. There were other temples up on the Acropolis as well. The temple to Nike. Hey, we haven't, we've come full circle, haven't we? All right. Um, anybody? No, I'm wearing my Asics today. And when Paul looks out, he sees a city that's full of idols. Literally, that word full means it's under idols or it's, it's swamped in idols. Temples, shrines, altars, stone idols, brass idols, gold idols, silver idols, ivory, marble, everything that you could imagine. And you look at this, okay, you're thinking, what's the big deal with idol worship? What's up with idolatry, right? What, we, we worship Jesus. We worship the one true God. We understand it. Here's the thing with idolatry. I want to read a couple of things here. And we can get caught up in idolatry just like they did then. Idolatry is something that was guaranteed. Idol worship. The formula is simple. Carve out a god of wood or stone and the god would enter into that icon. People really believe that. We would go into uh, villages and temples where we lived in China and we would see idols that had been hand-carved. And then they would make an offering to the idol and they would pray that there would be a spirit that would enter into that idol and they believed that the idol was filled with a spirit. Maybe. 
but we know that's a, de- a demonic spirit. And so you've got this idol that you've created. It's like having a God in your midst. You can get their attention, boom, just like that, right? Everything you do is going to be noticed. God is in your house. A little G, tiny God. Idolatry is selfish. Here's how idolatry works. So you scratch the God's backs and they'll scratch yours. They need food and sacrifice. You need blessings. You do your thing, they'll do theirs. That's how idol worship works. Idolatry is easy. Ancient idolatry encouraged vain religious activity. You do what you like with your life, and as long as you show up consistently with your sacrifices, you'll be in good shape. We have a lot of that, actually, in the States, I'm afraid of. I'm going to do whatever I really kind of want to do, Monday through Saturday kind of a thing, right? And I'll show up for worship of a God on Sunday morning. If you've got this... I've got my chapstick in my pocket. Let's pretend like this is, this, this is sacrilegious, right? This is Jesus, guys. Some of us treat him like that at different times. If you do, hey, I, I, he's in my pocket, right? But whenever I need something, I pull him out. Hey, Jesus, help me. If you'll get me out of this mess, I promise I'll never do it again. Right? And then we put him back in our pocket. Because we got out of the mess. And then we go off and do what? We do the same exact thing again. Then we pull him back out. Hey, Jesus, will you help me? That's not how Jesus operates, guys. He's not an idol that we pull in and out of our pocket. We set up on some shelf. He's not some convenient little God that we worship. Here's the other thing about idolatry. Everybody did it back then. It's how women got pregnant. It's how crops grew, how armies were conquered. Idolatry, you just, if you want something, you offer a sacrifice to the idol that's going to give you that. Idolatry was pleasing to the senses. If you're going to be especially religious, it helps to be able to see your God. It's harder to impress people with an invisible deity. You could see this God that's made of gold and and, and silver. You could see these temples of marble. Idolatry is indulgent. Sacrificing to the gods did not often require sacrifice for the worshiper. Leftover food that you offer to your idol, what can you do with it? You can eat it. Leftover drink that you offer, you can drink it. Generosity to the gods leads to feasting for the people. Idolatry was sensual. The whole system was marked by eroticism. Rituals could turn into orgies. Sex on earth often meant sex in heaven. And sex in heaven meant big rains, big harvests, and tons and tons of cattle and herds. Can you see the attraction of idolatry? Let's see what I want I want a spirituality that gets me lots, costs me little, easy to see, easy to do, has few ethical or doctrinal boundaries, and guarantees me success, it feels good, and it doesn't offend the other people around me. Let's not be that way. That's called the prosperity gospel. All kinds of other things. Nominal Christianity. Don't be an idol worshiper. Don't have a little Jesus that lives in your pocket. He's the King of kings and He's the Lord of lords. When Paul saw the idolatry, it says there in verse 16 that he was provoked within him. That word, uh, it, it means literally, it's like the word that they would use for somebody having a seizure or spasms. It, it's, the root word is the word for acid. Like, he was upset. 
And so what does Paul do? It says he goes into the synagogue where the Jews are. He goes into the marketplace where the Gentiles are. And he begins to share the gospel and talk with people about Jesus and the resurrection. He runs into these people called the Epicureans. Anybody know anything about the Epicureans? Okay. The Epicureans, I'm not going to get into this a whole lot. The Epicureans were lovers of pleasure and tranquility. They just wanted to live this chill life where everything goes pretty smooth. That's my 19-year-old son. He is close to being an Epicurean. Um, no, he loves Jesus. But it's, it's tempting, right? They thought that God is, is remote. He's far off. It's kind of like hedonism under control, right? It's all good. We're going to be all right. Let's, just, let's not get too uptight about things. The Stoics, though, that he runs into, verse 18, they're different. These guys are hardcore. Virtue, ethics, reason. Those are the good things. We've got to figure out how things work. They were a little bit stressed. They did not want to be controlled by their love of pleasure. They, they were naturalists. They thought that there was a natural order to things. They loved being out in, in, in nature as well. They were kind of like a cross between a tree hugger and a kamikaze pilot. Okay? Um, they were militant folks. They dealt with facts. The Epicureans dealt with feelings. And they come to Paul and they call him a seed picker, this idle babbler. I don't know if any of your translations say seed picker. Literally that word means, it's like a, a bird that just kind of picks up seeds. And they're thinking, wow, here's this guy who's telling us the, these different philosophies and he's talking about a guy named Jesus and he's talking about resurrection and he's talking about grace and he's talking about these other things. It's like he's just grabbing stuff from all over the place and trying to put it together and make a philosophy out of it. So they're making fun of him. Have you ever shared the gospel in a context where you're a little bit intimidated and you probably got made fun of? Probably, maybe you got rejected. You're in good company. That's what Paul was doing. So as he begins to preach that sermon, let's look at, real quick, three things that we can learn from Paul. Three lessons that we learn from Paul in Athens. Here's the first one. Don't be afraid or intimidated to engage people who are different from you. Okay, here's the thing about the Athenians. They were smart, intellectual, education. They had beauty, culture. They had everything. I mean, this is one of the, the great cities of the world, and Paul walks into that. They were proud, proud people. That can be intimidating. That can be intimidating. When you walk onto campus sometimes, maybe, and as a Christian, you're thinking, okay, I want to be salt and light in this area. But you're looking around and you're thinking, wow, what if they ask questions that I can't answer? What if my, what if my professor starts talking to me about things and he's, he's, maybe he's going to disprove the Bible? Right? You start asking these questions, you start thinking and, and processing through it. It's easy to get intimidated. It would have been easy for Paul to be intimidated, but he wasn't. He went out into the city, the synagogue, the marketplace. He engaged the Epicureans and the Stoics. He talked with them about idols. Look at that. Verse 23. He found a way to engage contextually that made sense to them. They're idol worshippers, so he found the idol to the unknown God. 
And he said, this God that you worship as unknown, let me tell you about him. Real quick story. I'm going to do my best not to go over time. When we were overseas, we would go into villages, and we would go into villages, and there were lots of temples. There was a folk Buddhism is what they worshipped. So there was, they were full of idols, um, and they would be in there praying, but they were also very superstitious. And we're, we're preaching, and well, we're teaching, we're talking about the gospel. We're always looking for persons of peace. We go in, we would ask people, hey, what is that? There's a mirror hanging over your door. What is that mirror for? We know what the mirror is for. The mirror is to keep the demons away, right? If the demons are, are, are going to come up to your house, and they're getting ready to come into the door to get your family, if they look up and see themselves in the mirror, they're scared away, and they go the opposite direction. So I know what the mirror's for, but I'm going to ask them, hey, what's the mirror for? And they would tell me, man, the mirror keeps the demons away. Whoa, tell me about that. So they would explain that a little bit, and I would listen. And then I would say, hey, what if I told you that there is a, a one true most high God that created and made everything in the universe. He is not afraid of the demons, and he can protect you from the demons. Would you like to hear about that God? It, it, it was uncanny. Almost every time, about half the people in the room would say, no, I really don't want to hear about him. About the other half would say, yes, I want to hear about him. So we began to talk with these folks that were interested in the gospel. One of the times we were talking to folks, they said, hey, um, they said, come outside here. I want you to look at something we built in our backyard that you might be interested in. I'm like, okay. So I go around, and there's this mound of dirt with a tall stick in the top of it. And then right next to it, there's a, another stick down in the ground. And the guy said, we built this, and we put some, some of our jewelry in there, in the dirt, and we, we, we built a mound, and we put that stake up on there, because we know and we believe that there is one true God, but we don't, we don't know who He is. I'm like, wow, okay. I said, well, what's this stake right there? They said, we believe that's His Son. Now, were they worshiping Jesus? No. Is there a quick and easy way to begin talking to them about Jesus? Yes. Uh, write this verse down, Ecclesiastes 3.11. A guy named Don Richardson wrote a book. He worked with unreached people groups all over the world. And, and he talks about this thing. It says that God has placed eternity in the hearts of man. Here's what that means. Whenever I believe when Jesus says the harvest is plentiful... I believe what he's saying is there are a ton of people out there who are ready and waiting to hear the gospel. There are people all over the world, all over this campus, all over the city, all over the state, who are ready and waiting to hear the gospel. God has put eternity in the hearts of men. And he says, pray that we would send labor, pray that the Father would send laborers out into the harvest field. People who would be unafraid, people who would not be intimidated to engage others. So go out on campus. Go out in the city. Talk to people about Jesus. Don't be afraid. That's part of the Great Commission. Jesus said, I will be with you always to the end of the age. Here's a question. Are you intentionally building relationships with people who aren't like you? That's the thing. When Paul went into Athens, there were some Hebrews there. There were some Jews there because he went into the synagogue. But he didn't just stay there all the time. He was in the marketplace. He was talking to the idol, idol worshipers. Or are most of the people that you talk to and hang out with very, very similar to you? 
engage people that are different. I'm not just talking about race. Uh, there's all kinds of different people out there. Talk to them. Find them. Get to know them. God is working in some of those people's hearts to draw them to himself, just like he was people in Athens. Notice verse 34. There were folks who got saved. God wants you to go share with them. So number one, don't be afraid or intimidated to engage people who are different from you. Go do it. Number two, simple, self-evident. Tell people about Jesus. Okay? Invite them to church, yes. But getting them to come to church is not the same as them becoming a child of God. Okay? Um, When Paul preached, we know, verse 18, he talked about Jesus and the resurrection. When he preached the sermon, he talked about Creator God. He talked about Sustainer God. He talked about a Sovereign God. He talked about the Ruler of everything. And he talked about the Judge of all. You know, starting with Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God. He created the heavens and the earth. Talk to people about that. Jesus was there, guys. John 1, 1 tells us that. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Everything that we see in creation, it came from Him. Find ways to talk to people about Jesus. Here's the thing. Are you able to give a simple gospel presentation? If someone, if you were to interact with someone and begin talking to them, and you found that, that avenue, i.e. opening your mouth, to share about Jesus, would you be able to present a simple gospel presentation? God loves us. He created us to be in relationship with Him. Adam and Eve were in the garden. Perfect relationship with God until the fall. And everything went bad. And we live in this broken world where, yes, there is good, but there is pain, there is suffering, there is struggle. And for us, we need to understand and own the fact that sin and my relationship with God is broken such that there's nothing that I can do to fix it. And if it's up to me to fix that, I will receive the wage of my sin, which is death. And I'll be separated from God forever. But God knew that I couldn't fix it. And John 3.16 says that He loved the world, including me, all of us, enough to save us so that we didn't have to to perish, but we could have eternal life through Jesus who paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. And He invites us to become one of His children, to be one of His people, and to have hope in Him forever and ever and ever. Now, as many of us as are in this room, there's that many different ways to share the gospel with someone that you're going to interact with this next week. But the question is, can we present a simple gospel presentation? If you are not sure whether or not you can do that, I heard about this place tonight at 6.30. (laughs) Where you can learn how to do that. Please come. Um, there's a, uh, I'm not much on research, um, but there's a, a statistic out there 
100% of the people that never have the gospel shared with them never believe. So, um, if we sow sparingly, we will reap sparingly. That's how the Bible puts it. So abundantly, reap abundantly. I'll tell you a quick story here. Gossiping, here, here's another way to think of that. Telling people about Jesus. Gossiping the gospel informally. Just find ways to talk about the gospel. Find ways to talk about God's grace. Find ways to share your testimony, what God's doing in your life with other people. Just gossip the gospel informally. My, my little girl, she's 12 years old. We were camping a couple weekends ago, and we've got a four-year-old cousin. She has a four-year-old cousin. And she's wanting to, to read a Bible story to him. This is a true story, guys. She's wanting to read a Bible, to, a Bible story to him at night before he goes to bed. Well, he's been outside all day long in the fire with sticks. He's got a Spider-Man outfit, and, and he's fighting against the Hulk. And he's just got all kinds of stuff going on, right? He's going 100 miles an hour. And all he's thinking about is superheroes and fighting. And so, now Joseph, my 15-year-old, has been helping him think about superheroes and fighting all day long, right? But Anna, anybody have little girls in here? Yes. Aren't little girls sweet? Yes, they are. Um, Anna wants to read a Bible story to Gavin. So Gavin won't listen. So here's what Anna does. She's got her Jesus Storybook Bible. Anybody have a Jesus Storybook Bible? You can read it even if you're an adult, okay? She gets the Jesus Storybook Bible and she says, Gavin, she said, did you know there's a story in here about fighting? And he perks up. So she takes him to David and Goliath, right? And she's reading him that story about fighting. He's kind of getting into it. At the end, it talks about the hero, right? And then she says, hey, Gavin, let me read you another story about another hero. And then she turns over to Jesus and starts reading to Gavin about Jesus. Now, that wasn't that hard. Guys, we can tell other people about Jesus. We just need to be more intentional and do that. One, don't be afraid or intimidated to engage people who are different from you. Two, tell people about Jesus. Number three, this is huge, guys. Develop a passion for the glory of God and the salvation of people. You ought to give a crap. Okay, I probably could have said a bad word, but um, you ought to care, one, that God's glory doesn't go forth like it should, and that there are people around us every single day, if we don't do anything or if nothing happens in their lives, they're going to die and go to hell. Eight out of ten people at the grocery store. Go to Walmart, okay? Eight out of ten of the people that you see in Walmart are going to die and go to hell if they don't hear the gospel. Some counties in West Virginia, nine out of ten. So you say, well, that's horrible. That eight out of ten isn't bad, right? Um, the U.S. is the fourth largest mission field in the world. China? India, those two battle for first and second all the time. China, India, then you've got this Indo-Malaysian uh, section of islands that is, the, the majority are Muslims. And then you've got the U.S. When Paul looked out at the idols, it says in verse 16 that he was provoked. He was distressed, he was irritated. Actually, that word means he was aroused to anger. 
He was mad at what he saw. Isaiah 42.8 says this, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. He is a jealous God. Is it okay for him to be jealous? Yes, because he's the one true God. He is the God of all glory. He's the God that made you to be in relationship with him. He made us to be in relationship with him. And when we're not, and we're out doing our own thing, and we're out worshiping our own idols, and we're ignoring him, that does not bring him glory. He's jealous. I want my spouse to be faithful to me, right? Is that an outrageous request? No. Okay. Should my spouse want me to be faithful to her? Yes. Should there be a, a holy jealousy there for one another? Yes, guys, that is the way the one true God is with us. Jesus is with us. He died on the cross for our sins so that we would be made right with Him, with the Father. The Holy Spirit would live inside of us. He did that for us. And when there are cities full of idols and there are campuses full of worshiping things other than the one true God, it grieves God and it ought to grieve us. We should have a passion for the glory of God, but also for the salvation of people. When Jesus in Luke chapter 19 drew near to Jerusalem, he's getting ready to walk into the city that's going to kill him, right? He knows those people are going to hate him in just a few days. Now, in the flesh, what do we do? We turn and go the other way, right, guys? <laughs> or we might even get mad. Start, can you believe those people? What did Jesus do when he drew near and he saw the city? He wept over it. He said, I, I would have taken you and loved you, but you would have none of it. Do you have a passion for God? Are you broken over lostness? How much do you really care? Are you more Epicurean than you are Christian? You'd just rather have the easy life, keep it pretty smooth, don't bother me with a whole lot of peripheral stuff. I'll go to church on Sunday mornings. I might even tithe a little bit. But I don't want to get all riled up with this passion stuff. If you are thinking that way, you need to rethink the gospel that you've understood. Here's a question that I remember thinking about. Uh, never thought about it before I went to college, but I thought about it when I went to college. And I was watching the video, William Carey, all these missionaries. Jim Elliott, would you die for your faith? Man, that hit me like a ton of bricks. Because a lot of those folks, they did die. Uh, Read in Hebrews chapter 11. Some of them were sawn in two. Here's the thing. God didn't save you so that you would clean up. You know what I mean? Cut your hair. Cover up the tattoos. I don't have any tattoos. I kind of wish I would have gotten one before I got married. My wife won't let me have one now. But... um, so it's never going to happen. <laughs> but God didn't, God didn't save you so that you would you know, cut the hair, cover up the tattoos, change your Sunday morning routine a little bit, turn your radio station to K-Love, right? God saved you 
so that you would be hit one of his people on mission with him every day, whatever that means, wherever he tells you to go. And we have about this much time to do it. Man, time flies. It, it seems like a couple years ago, whenever I was, in, I was at university, I'm almost 47 years old now. I was thinking how fast the last 20 years have gone, right? In 20 more years, I'll be 67. Adam, what's happening to us? <laughs> there was a man in England named James Fraser who was a student studying engineering, brilliant. Uh, he had a bright, bright future ahead of him. He was a concert pianist as well. He was a good churchgoer. And, and toward the end of his time at university, he was walking to class one day and he picked up a brochure written by a missionary in China. The brochure was entitled, Do Not Say. So he opens this thing and he starts to read it. And here's part of what he read. It says, A command has been given. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. It has not been obeyed. More than half the people in the world have never yet heard the gospel. Did you know today there are still thousands and thousands of unreached people groups that have no access to the gospel yet? That is not God's will for people. More than half the people in the world have never yet heard the gospel. What are we to say to this? Surely it concerns us Christians very seriously, for we are the people who are responsible. If our master returned today to find millions of people unevangelized and looked as of course he would look to us for an explanation, I cannot imagine what explanation we should have to give of one thing I am certain that most of the excuses we are accustomed to make with such good conscience now, we should be wholly ashamed of then. James Frazier read that and was broken. The, the, the whole course of his life changed. And within two years, he was riding on a horse into the mountains of southwestern China to work with a people group called the Lisu people. The Lisu were some of the most pagan people at the time. They had this thing that they would call the sword ceremony. And they would take swords and they would lash them to two poles that would stretch up into the sky about 30 or 40 feet. The blades would be turned upward. And these men would get into a demonic trance praying for the demons to protect them as they climbed up that ladder, grasping hold of razor-sharp sword blades. He saw people do this. Uh, we've seen that reenacted, because where we lived was close to some of the Lisu people. Um, Fraser spent years and years and years in Lisu villages. He learned the Lisu language. He was translating the Bible into Lisu. And finally, one day, there was a family of Lisu that believed. And he called it this great tidal wave. And this family believed, and then this family believed, and then this village believes, and then that other village believes. 
Today, the majority of Lisu people are evangelical Christians who are not only in their own villages, they are training their children and their sons and their daughters to up so that they can go out and share the gospel with the Da'ang people, with the Dai people, with all these other unreached people groups in that area. And it started because there was this college student that became convicted that God wanted him to do more than just have a job and go to church on Sunday morning. So I want to challenge you guys in this. Now, God may want every single one of you to go out and engage in an unreached people group. I have no idea what God's going to do in your life, but here's the thing I want to ask you to do. Be open to it. If God were to open a door for you to go to the other side of the world to engage an unreached people group, would you be willing to do that? What if God were to open a door of opportunity for you to join a church planting team in West Virginia and go to a place that desperately needs another church? Again, is, is West Virginia as crucial and critical as some of the unengaged, unreached people groups on the other side of the world? I'd say no. If you're trying to choose between an unengaged, unreached people group and West Virginia, and you're open to either, go to the other side of the world. And that's coming from a guy who might get into a little bit of trouble if my boss heard me trying to get rid of people who could potentially plant churches in West Virginia. Okay, Go to the other side of the world. But God's not going to call all of you to go to the other side of the world, probably. But He is going to call you to have jobs, and to have families, and to work, and to live in communities. Here's my challenge. Whatever it is He calls you to do, wherever it is He places you, be on mission there. Wherever you live, wherever you work, wherever you play, find ways to engage people with the gospel. Tell them about Jesus. Have a passion for the glory of God. And see churches started in places all over the state. I'll close with this. Um, Now, this would almost be like an unreached people group for you guys. Do you know one of the places where we desperately need another church plant? Morgantown. Ooh. (laughs) Think about that. I, I don't know of a ministry that engages their campus better than this one and trains up church planters and sends people out and mentors folks so that they're strong in their faith and able to go. What if God would have you in a season now of being prepared, sharing the gospel, being discipled, learning what it takes to be an active member in a spirit-filled church, and then he sends you off somewhere else to go do that same thing in another city in West Virginia. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. God, help us to be missionaries. We want to be like the Apostle Paul. God, we want to engage the folks that are around us. We want to see lostness and darkness pushed back. And God, we want to see your glory shine. So we pray that you would do that. God, work in our hearts. I pray for these folks that are here, God. Uh, A lot of students, but God, a lot of professionals. Um, God, some grandparents probably even, would they be willing to go somewhere where their grandchildren don't live and be on mission with you? God, I, I pray that you would work in each one of our hearts. 
Show us how and where you want us to be on mission, that God, we will be obedient. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.